Hi, you're listening to a podcast from the Galton Institute Conference from 2019, all about the ancient history of Britain, which was held at the Royal Society. Here, Dr. Selina Brace and Professor Ian Barnes, who are both ancient DNA researchers from the Natural History Museum in London, talk about their work looking into how humans in Britain transitioned to farming and to the technical innovations of the Bronze Age, and what DNA has uncovered about how this happened. So the work that we're going to be talking about is a combination of two different projects that we worked on um, in the last few years. One of them looking at the Mesolithic to Neolithic transition in Britain, so it's the transition to farming. And a second project that looks at uh, the change from the late Neolithic to uh, the early Bronze Age. Um, and it's at this time that a group of people called the Beaker people, the Beaker folk, arrived in Britain and uh, brought a, a characteristic culture, material culture with them. How, how long are we talking in this transition from the Mesolithic to the Bronze Age? The change from the Mesolithic to the Neolithic happened about 6,000 years ago and the end of the Neolithic going into the Bronze Age is about 4,000 years ago. Right, and uh, paint me a picture of what Mesolithic life would have been like. So these are people, probably um, small groups of people uh, spread out across the landscape in bands uh, migrating around the country and hunting game animals that were available. So probably the biggest thing they might have hunted would be uh, perhaps a red deer, relying on fish and birds as well. And um, as I say, probably quite um, seasonal uh, changes in the way they moved around uh, Britain. The people that replaced them are Neolithic farmers, who sedentary, sat uh, in one place all the time, and uh, farmed crops and animals. Right, and the clue might be in the name, but then what happens in the Bronze Age? Well, so towards the end of the Neolithic period, a new group of people uh, arrived in Britain, and that's the, one of the pieces of work that uh, Selena and I worked on, examining how significant that transition is and where those people came from. So what we see is a change in the material culture, uh, these beaker people bring with them beakers and also uh, after a, a bit later on uh, bronze goods as well, characteristic axe heads, stone tools uh, of a particular type and wrist guards for archery and uh, sorts of different things. So the thing we've been looking at is uh, how significant that transition is uh, in terms of the genome of the people that we, uh, we find in, in that period. Selena, how, uh, how are you using DNA to investigate this time? We use DNA to actually try and understand things like movements of people. So um, your signature, your DNA signature, if I took your DNA or my DNA, there are many things that would be the same, humans, <laughs> um, but there are things that would be very different depending on our background, where we've come from. So what you can do by looking at the DNA is look at the DNA from an individual from a certain time point and then take another individual from a different time point or again, same time point, a different place, say. Uh, and then you can compare those two and from those signatures see are these the same signatures that you get? So when we're looking at these time points, what we want to know is, is it the same group of people? Ian was talking about you go from a hunter-gatherer to a farmer. What we want to know from the DNA is, is it, are those people the same? Or is it a whole different group of people that suddenly arrive and start farming? 
by looking at the DNA and the differences and similarities in the DNA, you can answer those kinds of questions. Well, so what, what have you found then? They're very different people. Yeah, so this is not a transmission of ideas or culture. It's actually a whole different group of people who enter into the UK at this time point, bringing farming with them and changing the way that people live their lives at that time. Right, so these hunter-gatherer types, they didn't suddenly wake up one day and say, oh, you know what, farming sounds good. It was new people arriving into the country who brought these, these ideas with them. Exactly, and, and that was the exact question that we wanted to address. And um, What does this mean then, this finding? What's the implications of this? The implications are that farming is a massive, massive change. It changes everything about the way you interact. It means you're more open to diseases. Um, what you're eating is different. Everything about what you've done is different. And it's just a really odd time point to be thinking, how, how did this happen? So to be able to answer that and say, actually, it was different groups of people coming in, it just makes you have a better understanding of, of, of how these massive changes occur and for us to understand our, our, our ancestry. And doing this relied on finding DNA from those time points. How easy is that to come across? Finding DNA is different for different time points. Uh, so in the Neolithic farmers, there's a lot of people, we have a lot of dead bodies from this time period. The Mesolithic, however, the hunter-gatherer time point, there's a lot less bodies, possibly because there was less people in Britain at that time, but also possibly it could be to do with what they're doing with their burial practices. If people are um, putting bodies into like the water, into the rivers and the oceans, we're not going to find those bodies. Um, there's also excarnation, so sometimes people build these giant structures and put the dead bodies on the top and then uh, a carrion and birds they take away and so in that case we're not going to find these bodies either. So it's very much dependent on the time, the burial practice and numbers of people who are there at the time. Uh, so Ian, what were your, were your reactions to the findings of this study? I think we were, when we first started the study, which is about five or six years ago now, uh, we anticipated that there would be a reasonable amount of um, genetic continuity, population continuity, um, through time in Britain. Um, so no major turnovers of the population. And as the study went on, um, we and others who were working in other places in Europe identified that, um, in fact, there are at least these two major population turnover events um, that occur across Europe, and particularly we could identify them in the UK. So that was actually genuinely quite surprising, the extent to which populations in the UK um, have seemed to change. We don't seem to find similar large-scale changes in recent time periods. So there's something obviously a little bit unusual about well, either recent times or the past, depending on how you look at it. And is this something that's um, unusual for Britain, because it's on its end at the end of Europe a little bit? Is this something we see uh, copied across Europe? So because Britain's in an unusual position, it's the sort of top left-hand corner of Europe, and also separated from the rest of Europe by the Channel, one might expect that population change would be reduced, um, and that there'd be just a, a clearer signal of population continuity. 
But in fact, we see pretty much the same patterns in Europe as we see in Britain, population change over time. One thing that we do see um, elsewhere in Europe is a kind of resurgence in the Neolithic of Mesolithic hunter-gatherer individuals. So they reappear on the landscape um, hundreds to maybe a thousand years after the Neolithic uh, peoples arrive. We don't see that in Britain, and it's really not clear why. So there's still quite a lot of questions, actually, uh, from the work that we've done. When you had these big waves of, of new people coming in with new ideas, were there any genetic markers that came up that were associated with characteristics? Did the beaker folk have bigger ears or anything like that? Uh, that's a really interesting question. One of the things that's perhaps a little bit disappointing about working in the kind of work that we do is how little we understand the link between the genome and people's appearance or other attributes that they might have. Um, so it turns out that even fairly simple traits uh, are controlled by lots of different parts of the genome and it's very difficult to exactly pin down um, that link. But uh, what we have been able to work on are things like um, skin pigmentation. So we know that um, people essentially get lighter over the last 10,000 years in terms of skin pigmentation. Um, eye colour, uh, which fluctuates um, different colours at different time points. Uh, and hair colour as well. So uh, typically going from quite dark brown in the Mesolithic uh, to a broader range of um, hair colours by uh, the time the beaker people arrive, including um, red hair. When you're using DNA to answer these big questions, how easy is it to separate out what's actually going on? Because you assume that populations might have interbred, so how hard is it to unpick those pieces? I think it depends on the exact question that you're trying to, to ask. And Sometimes you will get a very strong signature and other times it's quite muddy. <laughs> Um, so it's about using different analyses depending on what question you want to ask and then looking at that data and, and as I say sometimes it is just very clear so when you plot them out on things like PCAs so principal components analysis where you can look at the, the similarities and the differences between individuals sometimes it's, it's yeah it's strikingly obvious they're all very 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 similar very tightly packed together uh, and so then it's very clear and then when you get other individuals say from a different time point that are on a completely different part of a PCA and they are then looking just so utterly different the signature that you get it can be very clear um, a good example of this is um, there was a cave site that we uh, were looking at, a cave called Avalon's Hole, and this was thought to be a Mesolithic burial site. We looked at a lot of individuals from there, about 20 individuals. Most of them had 0% endogenous DNA, so no good to us. One individual had a very, very high endogenous DNA content, like 60%. Um, and we're like, wow, that's amazing. Uh, and then when we looked at that DNA closer, and then we looked at where it fell on a PCA and compared it to other individuals, it was like, this doesn't look like a Mesolithic individual. This looks like a much more recent individual. And then it turned out when we actually went back to radiocarbon dates on these individuals again, it turned out, in fact, yes, they were more recent individuals and that the, the setting in, in, in the... Um, the burial site itself was a mixed burial site, which we wouldn't have known if we hadn't looked at the DNA and then questioned it. So sometimes it's very obvious from the DNA, uh, and other times less so.
So one of the things that's very exciting about the work that we get to do is that uh, we're able to use data from both modern day populations and from archaeological populations. And so both of those types of information have different strengths. Obviously it's a lot easier to get uh, DNA samples from modern day individuals, but it represents only one version of the population at one point in time. So what we can do is take samples from a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, and keep hopping back in time to establish what the population looks like at different time points. Um, and that gives us a lot of power in terms of understanding population change, population mixture, how people adapt to different um, environments, um, and to better understand the past and the archaeological record. Dr Selina Brace and Professor Ian Barnes there, both from the Natural History Museum in London, speaking to me at the Galton Institute Conference. You can find out more about the Institute and watch short videos from other conference speakers online at galtoninstitute.org.uk. This podcast was produced by me, Georgia Mills, for First Create the Media. And the music was Drops of H2O by Jay Lang, which was licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. Thanks for listening. <laughs>